so we've been working through James, and James is a, is a, offers quite a challenge today, and I want to talk about that just soon. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and so we're going to switch gears and talk about the meaning of Palm Sunday and what that means, and that fits, leads us right into Easter. So uh, this will be, at least for a time, our last message out of James. But I want to start by sharing with you one of my favorite literary characters. He, he's definitely one of my favorites who's not a hobbit or a starship captain. Um, but his name is Brother Cadfell. And his, the books were written by Ellis Peters, and there's like 15 books. They did make some uh, movies out of the books that is like a PBS or BBC thing. So the pictures, uh, Derek Jacoby became the actor who played, played Brother Catfield. But he is a, a Shrewsbury monk, a monk um, in England in the Middle Ages, uh, 1100s, during a time when there was a civil war taking place in England. And his story is that of, he, he was in the Crusades. He was a crusader, spent some time, came back, and realized he, he needed to make a change of life. So he took orders and became a monk, and he became the herbalist, which meant he would grow the little plants that were meant to um, heal people. So kind of the medicinal part of the monastery and that, in the, the book series, he, he basically ends up solving murders. So the other guy in the picture that's not a monk is Hugh, the sheriff. And the, the sheriff kept going to Cadfell, like, why is this person dead? And poisons and all kinds of other stuff. So he had a lot of books. But the, I, I would listen to these books when I was doing seminary, and I happened to have a two-hour drive, two and a half sometimes even, to get to my seminary classes. I, I did, did it a weird way. I, I did one class a week for several years. Great way to, uh, to get an advanced degree, but it, it actually was. But it meant I had two and a half hours of driving. So in that time, I listened to all of the, the audiobooks of Brother Cadfell. And at one point, my seminary professor, who also was a fan of the books, allowed me, because I had to do so much reading for my church history, he said these were accurate enough that he let me count that as my reading towards my class that I was supposed to get in, because it described the life of a monk in the Middle Ages and what that would have meant, and how they made vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And so I thought a lot about in these what would it be like to take on the life of a humble monk? To set aside all the things we worry and strive for and try to get possess- no possessions. Right? You're giving up. You own nothing. Um, everything is owned by the monastery. You have a place to sleep. You have food. You are told what work to do. You can't go where you want to go. You're under orders, under obedience. So you, you give up a lot of control, but then you also give up a lot of stress. And it's a humble life and um, probably a sense of peace about that. So I, I was thinking about, is that, is that what it takes to, 
to humbly live before God. Because if you read James's passage, as we, we did, like, how do you actually live up to what this is calling us to? Do you, do you pretty much have to become a monk to be able to do it? And so I'm going to argue no, but I, I want us to start thinking about that. Like, in this passage, what is this really calling us to do? James, in his letter, tends to jump around topics a lot. We were talking about this at men's Bible study. Some people love James, and you've told me that, oh, James is one of my favorites. I, I, I appreciate James, but he does. He jumps around a lot, and I know there's others that get frustrated with that. Like, where the other, one of the other letters is by Paul. Paul is a very linear thinking. Paul thinks out like a lawyer, which he was. James is just hits, goes here, here, here. And, and so I was trying to, is there a connection? And here's what I'm going to offer as the connecting thought between all these passages that we read um, from 4.10 all the way to 5.6. And it's, the controlling thing comes in, in this 4 verse 10 where it says, humble yourselves then before God. It's this, and then earlier in 4 6, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. And what I'm going to offer is that, that the connecting theme between all of these is spiritual arrogance. All of them have to do with, with a haughty, arrogant spirit. And I want to look at the words because it uses the word pride. And in English, in our usage, in our times, pride has mostly a positive connotation. You know, if, if you think, well, the Bible says don't be proud. Well, what does that mean? Well, pride, let me give you three definitions. Pride is, in most common usage, satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. Right? You take pride in your work. You know, if you take on, or maybe you take pride in, in the home that you, you kept it fixed up well. But, but that's a good thing, right? That you, you want, in fact, the Bible tells us to take, take pride in your work in the sense of whatever you do, do it with all your heart, right? Don't, don't do things halfway. And so how could God then be opposed to the proud if we're supposed to take pride? But pride can also be connected with and become arrogance, so here's arrogance. Disposed to exaggerate one's own worth or importance. It's not just that you want to do well, then you want to magnify what you do. It becomes self-important. And then from arrogance, you get to haughtiness, which then you take that arrogance that says being arrogantly superior and disdainful. What you do is of great importance. What they do is not so important. Right? You elevate your, your own self. And so when the Bible's saying God opposes the proud, it's, it's God is against being arrogantly superior and disdainful, making ourselves of prime importance. Spiritual arrogance will keep you from God. It will get in the way of a closer walk with the Lord. And I could give you multitudes of scriptures. Psalm 5.5 says, The arrogant cannot stand in your presence, in God's presence. 
right? Because I'm of great importance. When we come before God, we are recognizing His value and worth. We are minimizing ourselves rather than maximizing ourselves. Uh, Proverbs 8.13, it talks to us, as I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and per- perverse speech. God hates our pride because it gets in the way of us turning and trusting in Him. And the opposite say, so you have, you know, spiritual arrogance gets in the way. What does open the doors for us to draw near to God? It is humility, our humbleness. Psalm 51, 17, this is a great verse. It's, it's worth coming back to God. It, it's in the midst of a prayer of confession of sin, but, but David, the one who wrote it, says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. Contrite, humble, recognizing our own failings and, and need for God. Jesus talked about who, who gets into his kingdom and how do you get into his kingdom. And he, there's a couple different people. Uh, he says, can get in. One is, if you want to enter his kingdom, you've got to enter it like a little child. Right? He says uh, that they were bringing children to him, and some said, no, Jesus, you have more important things to do. He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And it's not talking about the innocence of children. Anyone who's a parent knows that children are not innocent, but, the, but they are in the sense, humble in that they're reliant and dependent on, on their parents. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. If we come to God and we come in our arrogance and say, well, God, I'll give you this if you give me that. It's not how it works. You come as a child. Father, I trust you. The other person group he said gets into his kingdom says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven kingdom of god right those who come in humility the poor in spirit so so spiritual arrogance will keep us from god coming in humility opens the door to closeness with god i there's three sections in this passage that we're looking at, each of them highlights a different way that that spiritual arrogance shows up in our lives. The first one is in our speech to one another, and it's a judgmental attitude toward other people. The passage talks about, says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And the one who speaks against a brother or sister, another person, what does it mean to speak evil? Well, different ways you can put that put put down. Uh, name calling could be just criticizing, blame blame casting. It's them um, wishing someone ill, cursing. There's all kinds of aspects of this, but but. But when you do that, you think in terms of looking at someone else and uh, negatively commenting on their life, speaking against them, what are you doing? Well, at your core, you are taking upon yourself the role of judge. Right? I am able to, to look at their life, look at their behaviors and decisions, and I can see how wrong 
they are. And I can pronounce a verdict on what they deserve. That's the essence of speaking ill of others, of judging them, of, of condemning or criticizing. We feel like we, we have it down. We know what is, what is good and right, and we can correct others and talk about how wrong they are. And there is something in each and every one of us that, that we, we want to look down others because somehow it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? At least I'm not as bad as them. You know when I remember seeing this, and it's been a, a while now, so I don't know if maybe the younger people will remember this, but did you watch any of the coverage of the Casey Anthony story on Nancy Grace? Do you remember? That was like a dozen years ago. And, and so Casey Anthony was a bad mother. No doubt about it. She was a young mom who her child went missing and she went to parties. But, but on CNN, whatever, whatever Nancy Grace was on, she would not let this go. Like, I mean, every day she would talk about how bad of a mother Casey Anthony was. Now, it was an interesting story, and they eventually, alas, Kaylee Anthony was found dead, and there was a trial, <coughs> excuse me, and all this. But the, the part that stuck out to me was like wall-to-wall coverage. And the only thought I had was, there's something drawing attention to this that people love to look at how bad she was. How many shows are there that, that kind of play into that? Like uh, the, a lot of the daytime uh, judge so-and-so show, you, you want to look, well, that person's an idiot, right? And we, they somehow find joy in that. So, so there's that, that idea of at least they're not as bad as I. We, our culture will spur us, will egg us on to take this role of judging other people, looking at their lives and criticizing and, and, and speaking down on them. There's a guy that came up to Jesus, and he said, Hey, teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. What do you think Jesus said? He says, Man, who made me judge in this case? Why, why would I be in the position to judge this? And so who made me the judge in this case? And Jesus then took out the opportunity to give a long sermon about uh, about the danger of wanting money too much and greed. So, so he, he, he went off on that. But, but the idea of, are we really, is it, is it our job to judge them? And that's a sign, speaking evil, being in this position of putting down others, highlighting their faults, really could be one of those signs of spiritual arrogance. Another sign of spiritual arrogance is boasting. Boasting about what we will do and how important we are and all the things we have going on. And so James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, what James describes does not sound all that bad, but, but when you boil it down, it's, it's the, the idea of boasting about how you are in control of things. You can go here and there. I, I can, I'm the greatest ever businessman. I could go into this city and make this happen, and I could go over here. And, and, and it's that idea of, of what it implies is I have it under control. 
I am in control of what takes place. I have this, this what it takes. It, I, I'm the one in charge of it all. And James, in response to that, says, who do you think you are? Right? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, and that mist vanishes. We think we can control things. We're the ones that, that have it all down. And we need to constantly come back to this truth. Is Our life is, is here for a little while, and we're gone. We, we, in worship, they read Psalm 103. It says the same thing, right? As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. And then the wind blows over and it's gone. Right? In, in the midst of the flowering, we might think, ha, ah, this is who I am. And we forget that we are made from the dust. And to dust, we will return. There's a, there was a mom with a four-year-old who was listening to a preacher talk on Psalm 103. And, and so, you know, it's one of those things, you never know what younger people will end up saying. And so the preacher's, you know, going on and on, as we preachers do. And he says, Dear Lord, the minister began with arms extended and a rapturous look on his upturned face. says, Without you, we are but dust. And the four-year-old says, Mom, very loudly, What's but dust? <laughs> the truth is, we are but dust. Now I know, for especially probably our, our, our middle schoolers, that's the only thing they're going to remember about the sermon, is that he said we're all butt dust. But you won't forget it, will you? We are in need. We are, we are dependent. We're not as in charge of, of life as we try to pretend we are. We can be spiritually arrogant. And we have this attitude that we can, we are the ones who are sovereign over our life. And that's why James says boasting is evil. That's pretty serious. Boasting is evil because it's failing to acknowledge that God is the ultimate sovereign over us. We are reliant upon Him. That last verse, 17, in this section that says, So, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Is that one of those, is that a change of topic? Like, but he says so. Like, how, how does this verse fit into what he's saying? And, I, and I, I was thinking how we can find ways to talk ourselves into doing what is wrong. Right? We can think in our self-importance that we, we can figure out some complicated way by which we could do something that is clearly wrong, um, but find it being okay. Like we play the three-dimensional chess, and I could do wrong in this occasion, but it's going to be good in the end, so I can do it. And James says, don't try to be so smart, right? If you know you're not supposed to do something, or you are supposed to do something, do it. Or if you're not supposed to do something, don't do it, right? That's a sin. Don't try to talk yourself out of thinking you're too smart um, to find some way to get away with that. So, 
Boasting is a sign of spiritual arrogance. The last section is that wealth leads to the way we gain and spend our wealth can lead to spiritual arrogance or a sign of spiritual arrogance. In many times, especially Bible times, but I think often still in all of human history, wealth can be seen as a sign of God's favor. If someone is wealthy and rich, then, then the thought is uh, they must be blessed of God. Right? God blessed me with big bank accounts or treasuries full of gold. They must be doing something right or they wouldn't be rich. When Jesus came, he flipped it. Right? He says, who gets into God's kingdom? The poor, the blind, the lame, the hurting, the, the, the desperate. And when a rich guy came to him and says, Lord, you know, what do I need to do to make sure I'm in? He says, well, probably the first thing you should do is give away all your money. And the guy flipped out. Right? Who gets in? Wealth in the, the, the kingdom of God is not a sign that you have it all together. It is not a sign that you have God's favor. In fact, it could be the opposite. It could be a sign that you are facing condemnation. And that's what James is aiming at. He's saying your wealth may be a sign that you are, are, are in trouble come judgment day. What's he talking about? He's talking about your riches, your garments, your fancy clothes, right? Your gold, your silver, the treasure you have. He goes through all those things by which we measure our wealth. He says all of those will either rot or rust or be eaten away. Those things you think will last will not last if he were around today, he would probably talk about our 401ks and our investments or our mansions. All of that is temporary. All of that can, can be gone in an instant. And when it says you have laid up treasure in the last days, it, it, he's saying it means you, the treasure might actually testify against you when you stand before God in the judgment. So how do we gain? How do we keep, hold on to our wealth? We have to, to give thought to this. So, so the Bible overall, especially in this passage, says that wealth can be dangerous. There are four dangers of wealth. One is that, that we would treasure our wealth and possessions above that of our God. That our treasure would become more important to us than than the God we have given our life to. Jesus said, you know what it comes down to ultimately? You only can have one master. And either God is your master, the Lord is, is, is who your ultimate sovereign is, or money will be your master. And money has this way of worming itself into our life, our possessions, our wealth. We get used to it. And it can take control. And we can find that we are making our, the decisions in our life less based on what God wants and more based on how do we hold on to what we have or gain more of it. So beware. We can end up treasuring our wealth and possessions above that of God. Second aspect to this is we can trust in riches rather than God. 
Psalm 62, one of my favorite psalms, talks about making God our refuge. It says, to trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. He's the one that we rely upon in the tough times of life. It goes on to say, those of low estate, the lowborn, are but a breath. Ah, but the highborn are but a lie. Right? Lowborn, highborn, rich, wealthy, it doesn't matter. There's nothing to us unless we are set in God. We are all but dust in the end. It says, put no trust in extortion. You're not going to forget that, I know. <laughs> put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. In New Testament times, you could very easily be born poor, stay poor all your life, and never have much money, right? Never have much beyond food and clothing and maybe a little place to live. And we're told in the Bible, if, if you have that, be content. In America, it is possible, and I would say quite easily possible, if you work hard, if you make good life decisions, if you save, that you can gain wealth slowly, sometimes even quickly. But, but I remember my first boss when in ministry, my, my, the Young Life Regional Director, when I, he's, and he's talking to people in ministry. He says, in ministry, you're never going to make a lot of money. But he says, but you can still get rich slowly. And he was talking about saving and preparing for retirement. And it is in our, our culture, it is necessary to do that. So take nothing I'm saying to say that you should not try to save for retirement and, and have money in reserve because that's something needed. But, but it's possible to become wealthy slowly in America somewhat easily. So when we're reading what James is saying, we might think, well, that applies to them because they're rich and I'm not. Friends, if we have money beyond food, clothes, and shelter, we are wealthy. And I'm guessing that this all applies to all of us in this room, or at least almost all of us, right? We have money to spend, so how do we got to think about it? And we are called to trust in, in, in the Lord for him and not in the stuff that we have. The third danger of wealth, is we can gain wealth by injustice. Gain or keep our wealth through injustice. Right? We put um, getting wealth or keeping it ahead of doing what is right. So verse 4 talked about how, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So... It, it, you can imagine situations where in the ancient world where the, where the rich, the landowners, would, would not pay their people or, or do these things. And it says that's what's happening in our culture. Um, that can happen now in different ways. I remember a contractor who talked about how he worked on a... Um, he was always wary of working on, on these really expensive houses because he says he's noticed that wealthy people sometimes have a tendency to stiffen in payment. It's like they're used to getting everything for, for, for so much that they sometimes wouldn't pay, and he had to, had to fight that. Um, I think about us. We become used to certain, certain 
things economically, and if you take it away, think about how angry we've all been about inflation, including me. Like, like well, how dare eggs be, be more than a dollar fifty, you know, a dozen? But think about the work that goes into getting a dozen eggs. I know we have some people here who, who get eggs and do that. It's probably a lot of work, you know, for that. So why should eggs be cheap? Um, I've grown more concerned. Now, I am totally a free market guy. And I think the free market has led to a lot of the wealth that we have in our country. But I, I in the last 10 years or so, have grown more concerned about how, how, how are things produced that I'm taking, a, that I get in my life, whether it be electronics or groceries. And I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. And it's a complicated world. I'm concerned, is, was this made with slave labor? Knowing that there are places in China that there are people basically used as slave labor. Knowing that there are other people that are severely mistreated in the occupations that they have. Are we unintentionally guilty of verse 4? Of not paying the wages of the laborers who mowed our fields? Now I say this as a cheapskate. I want things cheap. But I've been talking myself into, you know, I'd rather pay a little bit more if I knew that this, this was produced by people who, who, who are truly free in being able to do the job that they're doing. And I have no particular solution to this other than don't take the, the low prices for granted, right? Give thought to that. Take care that we are being fair to the people that we're, we're making deals with as best we can. And most of all, is the, give thought to this, is the work we're doing or the way we're spending money, is that contributing to injustice? And if so, we do not want to have that being testifying against us. The fourth challenge in this, in, in how we have wealth, is the temptation to live in self-indulgence. We get used to luxuries. And once you have them, they are hard to give up. Right? Once you get used to something of a high quality or, or that's nice, you know, it, it's... So, I, you know, caviar for lunch, I just, I gotta have it now. Actually, I've never tried caviar. I'm not sure I'd want to. But, but haven't you found things like, as a kid, you're like, oh, I, I don't need that. And then once you get used to it, like fancy coffee, well, I got to have it every day now. Right? We, we have trouble imagining. And here's what I've learned. It is never enough. Right? I've, I've learned this about myself. No matter how much I get, I think if I just have this, I'll be happy. No. I will always want that next thing. I'll always want one more thing. We get used to living in luxury in this, this world, and we can have trouble doing without. One of the disciplines that the Bible talks about is fasting. And, and it generally has to do with food, but it can apply to different things, and it's, it's the discipline of doing without something as a way of, of asserting control over our, our flesh, our self, our desires, saying, I want to bring those in line with what I, I think is, is control. I don't want to be controlled by any of my desires. 
and I want to bring them under the control of, of our God. That is something that Christians and people of God have practiced in different ways. Give it thought. Are there things that maybe you, you need to, to think have gotten a hold of you and you need to give thought to how you can undo that, that connection? James talks about when you're living in luxury, it says you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. <laughs> James does not hold back. But it's this idea of like, it's like you've made yourself pigs, right? That you've, you've eaten all that you can eat. And judgment day is coming, right? And you're, you're on, the, on the plate of that. And then he uses extreme language to talk about our callousness to the poor. It says, you have murdered the righteous person who does not resist. We can grow callous. We can get used to luxuries for ourselves. And we can be callous to people who are living desperately in our life. And that should not, that's not how it should be. So given all this, given the dangers of spiritual life, what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we respond to this? And I'm going to give three things, two of, one of them out of James, and then we're going to shift to, to something Paul wrote. <coughs> Excuse me. First of all, we've got to go back to James 4.10. Remember what this is all about. This is the controlling verse for the whole passage I'm referring to. What's it say? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's the, the problem at core is the spiritual arrogance and all the things that, that it shows. Go to that. We've got to remember God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so we might need to come before God with, and seek forgiveness to how we've let money or possessions displace our loyalty to, to God in our life. Humble yourselves before God, before the mighty hand of the Lord. The second thing, and Paul gives some, some good thoughts on this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And let me read what it says, verses 6 to 9. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So he talks about the danger of wealth, but he says, what's the key? Learn to be content in Christ with what you have. He says, if we have food and clothing, that's enough, right? Well, Paul did not live in upstate New York. We need food, clothing, and we need shelter with heat, <laughs> right? We need snow shovels. Um, you know, so there are, there are other things, but, but do we really need everything that we crave? We crave so many things. Learn to be content with what we have. When you have that desire for something more, something new, at least put a check on yourself. Do I really need this? I remember at one point I really wanted a camper because I thought we would camp a lot. And, and at one point God said to me, you do realize you work weekends, don't you? You know, like, when would you actually go camping? Like, okay. So we got a tent and we occasionally camp. Um, but, but that idea of check your desires, Learn to be content with what you have. 
and ask, if I didn't get this thing, could I still be happy? The third, uh, third question is, is later in, in 1 Timothy 6. He comes back to it, and this time he speaks to those who are wealthy. So again, Paul's writing, says, As for the rich in this present age, which, catch, catch the line, the rich in this present age, the, the poor, those who have faith in God, are going to be the rich in the age to come. But the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous, and be ready to share. So there you go. For those who are rich, and again, by terms of this, we're probably all rich. Do good. Use your money to do good things. Use what God has given you to advance the work of the kingdom. To be rich in good works. Another, and don't, another, don't just give your money to stuff. Actually put sweat equity into it. Put your time into it as well. You are not too important to serve God in, in, in humble ways. So do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to give. And th- fourth, be ready to share. Do you have stuff that you're willing to share? I remember I bought a new car, car once and someone needed to borrow it. I'm like, I had to have a little battle in my heart over that. Okay. They can, they can use it. Right? Be ready to share. Remember, you've signed on to serve Christ as your king. We are called to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all that stuff the money, the food, that'll all work out if we keep Christ first as our king. James is challenging us to look into the mirror as we kind of close. And he's challenging us to ask these questions about, about our heart. Have you been trusting your possessions more than you're trusting in God? Have you grown so accustomed to the luxuries that they have a hold on you and you're going to have trouble letting go. Has your love for the Lord grown cold because your desire to earn money has precedence? Friends, as we head towards Easter morning, let's look into the mirror and, and give thought to the challenge of His Word. Let me pray. Father, Your Word does challenge us because it's so easy to, for the things of this world to get a hold of us and us not even realizing it. So Father, speak into our lives individually. You know each one here. May we each seek you and ask, what are you saying to us in this moment? Because we want to give our hearts ever more to you. You are our God. You are first. You are so good to us. And so we praise you and honor you in all that you've done. And we pray all this in the name of of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.